Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The benefit of the unbearable crushing. I've preached on this passage before, not too terribly long ago. But I assure you I have something different to say today, although I use the same passage. We all know life's a struggle, isn't it? It seems like life is just a series of battles, a series of storms that are just linked back to back. And we have these few and brief moments of calm in between the storms and in between the battles. And it seems like most people spend more of their life struggling than they do coasting. Would that be you? Seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? If life is like a bicycle race, why is it that there are disproportionately more uphills than there are downhills? And philosophers have written about the struggles of man throughout our history. And we encourage ourselves with little philosophical ditties. One person says, whatever the struggle to continue to climb, it may be only one step until you reach the summit. Now, that's encouraging. I need to hear encouragement like that from time to time. You do, too. Another person says, philosophically, If there is no struggle, there is no progress. I need to hear that. My struggles means I have the opportunity to advance. Another one says, opportunity follows struggle. It follows effort. It follows hard work. It doesn't come before. And I need to hear that. And you do too. But there's an old adage that says, misery loves company. Isn't it odd how we feel so much better to know somebody else is suffering as well as we are? Why is that? It is somehow somewhat comforting. No, we're not just the only ones that struggle. Now, in the second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul seems to almost inadvertently give us a glimpse into a part of his life as we look at little sections of this letter. Maybe he didn't intend to fully divulge this, but he divulges it. I know Paul struggled. I know from his writings the troubles he went through. That's a matter of record. But what he has to say in this letter to the church at Corinth He speaks more candidly about what it means to him to have to struggle. 
So I'm going to choose three passages of Scripture from this letter and read them to you and hear what he says about his earthly struggles. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, and that will be significant in explaining my title, Great Pressure. That's the crushing. That's where we get that idea. Far beyond our ability to endure. This is Paul speaking. And you have to ponder on that just a minute to realize how severe he is describing his circumstances. Beyond his ability to endure. Listen what else he says to describe this. So that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to to deliver us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And Paul says in this little passage, we have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay, that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Again, a word that helps define my title, the unbearable crushing. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For who, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And in the seventh chapter and the fifth verse, he says, When we arrived at Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction, with battles on the outside and fears on the inside. Now let me just talk a little bit about how I see the source of some of these crushing forces that come against us. The source of these battles that we face daily. And I'll take from Paul's last passage there that there are battles outside and there are battles inside. And I'll incorporate that into my comments. First of all, I want to talk about the crushing inside battles that we face. There are battles, what I would call, that lie in the realm of the mind. And let me quickly list three, maybe technically four, but I've combined two of them together, of these areas of battle. First is a battle of ignorance. We... It causes us frustration for the things we do not understand. And it causes us frustration. We create frustration for ourselves through willful ignorance. So there's two dimensions of ignorance. 
things I just don't know, and I get frustrated. And then I create battles for my life through willful ignorance. Many of you here have raised children. You understand examples of willful ignorance. You tell somebody, you explain to them, if you do this, this is what happens, and they do it anyway. They willfully ignore what you're telling them. But when we do that ourselves, we create our own struggles and our own battles. Because the rejection of, of plain truth is often due to our personal bias. We don't want to believe that. It doesn't suit us. It doesn't please us. Therefore, we choose not to believe the truth sometimes. Thomas Edison said 5% of the people think. 10% of the people think they think. And the other 85% would rather die than think. There hasn't been a single prophet of God that wasn't horribly frustrated with willful ignorance of the people they were trying to minister to. Prophets of God deliver the truth of God. And you think of Jeremiah. As he preached the truth and he was rejected time and again. Jesus reflected back on that when he sat outside Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stones the prophets that are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chicks, and you would not. Willful rejection and ignorance of clear truth. We as evangelists, you are an evangelist. I don't know how good a job you're doing. But you're an evangelist. You're a courier of the good news. And you would understand the frustration of trying to speak the truth of God's word to willfully blind and ignorant people who just don't want to get it. Do you have friends that turn you off when you begin to speak the truth of God? Do you have family that shuts you down when you try to share truth? Is it not frustrating? Willful ignorance is a battle that brings great frustration. You have family members that perhaps are lost and going to hell. And all you want to do is try and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all good. It's all good. They don't want to hear it. And you, you want to pull your hair out. Why not? Why do you prefer your misery to the pleasant truth that Jesus Christ gives to us? And eventually they end up avoiding you like the plague. Paul was frustrated with the ignorance of his own people. He cried out for their blindness. It was all so simple and clear to him. He would share his own testimony with them. 
Some would believe, but many of them would so boldly reject him and angrily reject him. They tried to kill him. They would attack him, beat him, drag him out of the city, throw him on the trash heap. Rejecting simple truth. It's a battle we face in our mind. It's a battle that brings discouragement. Our own willful ignorance makes our own challenges. The second thing in the mind, the battles within the mind, is the battle of discouragement. Some people are more prone to that. They're easily discouraged. Some people, they're not so easily discouraged, but they still have a threshold. They can get discouraged if things get bad enough. It's another one of those mental battles that can leave you weary. Discouragement leads to depression, and depression just saps you of all your strength. It's a battle we fight inside. Another battle we fight on the inside is doubt and fear. And that's the reason I said I have three or four of them. I'll put these two together. They're, they're, they kind of go together, kind of join together, aren't they? Doubt and fear, like a pair of concrete boots on a swimmer. They just keep pulling you down. People who are filled with doubt and fear find every effort to be laborious. There's no peace in the midst of doubt and fear. They don't coexist. You can't find peace even in the daylight. And you can't sleep at night because of doubt and fear. Worry cancels out the most joyous occasions that we should be celebrating, but we're worried about something. And no wonder that Paul recommends in various occasions and multiple times that we do something about the mind because he knows there's battles that go on there. See, he recommends at one point to take care of this problem. He said, be transformed through the renewing of your mind by the power of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, because we have to somehow conquer these battles in our mind that wear us out. No wonder Paul said that describing that a major part of winning our spiritual battle was learning how to cast down imaginations and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Because we have to get control of that. No wonder he spoke so powerful, powerfully and emphatically about these battles that are going on in our mind. The there's a lot of junk dwelling there, and it can leave us terribly defeated. And our mental battles are sometimes so overwhelming that they alone can defeat us. There's inward battles of the mind that I've mentioned, but inward battles of your conscience. We fight daily battles on the issues of how to make choices about right and wrong. We're confronted with situations that demand us to make the right choices, to keep our standing true or to compromise, to preserve our integrity or to sell out. Honesty or cheating, what are we going to choose for today? Telling the truth or bearing false witness. We have these daily opportunities to make either decision. We have this battle in our conscience. Should we or shouldn't we? 
And sometimes the situation becomes very murky. I was just speaking the other day. I'm going to keep the name anonymous, but I think the story is very powerful. Somebody who was asking me about a dilemma they were in. And it had to do with getting a refund of money from the insurance company, from, from, the, do, from the medical company, after the insurance company had already paid the bill. And the refund came back to them, significant amount. And the question was, who does this money belong to? Now, you can think on that for a while. But whenever you realize the money is, uh, I think it's about $600, there's an enticement there to be biased. This means $600. You got $600 back. But you only got it back, you only got it back, if this is you, because you called and negotiated it. Does it belong to you or not? And so we talked about it a little bit, and we recognized that there was a struggle there. And we decided, you know what the best thing to do is? Just call the insurance company up and tell them honestly, this is what happened. So they did, and they called back, and they said the insurance company said, it's mine. Well, you know, it all works out good when you really want to hold your integrity. And it's one of those things that was not crystal clear, yet there was an answer. And we face things like that from time to time. And as, as honest as we would like to believe we are, we do hit those sticky situations where we question, what is really the right thing to do here? It isn't always crystal clear. I just had an acquaintance of mine this past week that said they bought a used car. And while cleaning up their new used car and looking down and tucked in the seats and everything, they found $100. He said, what a wonderful feeling it was to buy a used car, but what a wonderful feeling it was, even more so, to take the $100 back to the previous owner. And I thought, well, you know, that's a rarity today. I admire that. And in his concluding remarks, he says, that's just the way I was raised. Unfortunately, in this generation, we don't have a lot of people who are raised like that. It's a finder's keeper's mentality. So we struggle with our conscience, those of us who still have a conscience. But we are looking at a generation that I'm not so sure they have a conscience, or much of one. We bring a lot of kids into this church, but we've had a lot of stuff stolen off of us. Pastor Jessica had a laptop stolen. Kids come in, they were devious. They were creating a plan to steal the laptop. Brought them a backpacks. When nobody's looking, they took the laptop, went into another room, stuffed it in their backpack, and walked out. No conscience. If they want it, they take it. But we struggle with issues of right and wrong. It's battles. And you would expect 100% of Christians to win their battles with their conscience, but they don't. Does that come as shocking news? 
The church has to deal with discipline issues within their own ranks simply because Christians fail to act like Christians ought to act. They fail to act like Jesus acts. And the church sometimes has to clean up the mess because somebody did not hold their integrity. It's not necessarily true that 100% of Christians act like Christ. They get drawn aside. They get distracted. And although man has always had to face a battle in his conscience from the very time that Adam and Eve had to choose between pleasing God and catering to their lusts, for the modern-day Christian in the United States, it's getting much more difficult these days to fight this battle of our conscience. And here's why. Because too many Christians are compromising their values and making it difficult for other Christians to think it's even worth the struggle to try and stand alone. In other words, we're being enticed by other Christians who are dropping the standards. Pretty soon you look around, you don't see a whole lot of people standing with you, and you give up and say, what's the use? Nobody else is doing this. Why should I continue? And that's when you really have to have your personal integrity to stand for what you believe is right when nobody is standing with you. It's a battle. Christian values are not dependent on majority opinions. They're dependent on the understanding of God's word and his will for our life. So do you sometimes feel overwhelmed fighting the battle of right and wrong when the tide is against us? Elijah did. He looked around and he felt all alone. He was wrong. God said he had reserved a remnant that was standing with him, but Elijah couldn't see it. He was so discouraged, he just wanted to die. God, kill me. I'm the only one left that loves you. And he'd become very discouraging. And then the third battle in the realm of the mind is, is our will. Now, this is a, one of the things that I want you to pay close attention to because there's two parables that Jesus uh, spoke of that I will present to you today that concern the will of man. He, he had more to say about the will of man, but these two will suffice for now. The first one is the parable of two sons. I won't read it for you, but I will remind you of the parable. A father says to his sons, I want you to go work in my vineyard today. One son says, I will, and he didn't. And one says, I won't, and he did. Just like kids. So unpredictable. And Jesus told that short story, and then he asked this philosophical question. Which one did the will of the father? This parable is entirely about the battle with the will. One that has an obstinate will. I don't want to. But he changes his will. And one that agrees, but his own will wins over and says, I didn't really want to do that. And ultimately... He decides against it. So this is the setup parable to help us understand Jesus recognized men and women have a battle in their will. But there's another parable, and it's the parable of the ten pounds. A noble man prepares to take a trip to a distant land where he's going to be crowned king. He gives money of various amounts to his servants and tells them, invest this during my absence. Now, we're all familiar with this story. 
The man goes away and he comes back and he expects and demands an accounting for their investments. And some of them invested and gained back, and one of them was so fearful he refused to invest, and he just buried the money and did nothing with it, and he was judged. Seems like the end of the story. And how many times have you read that? There is in that parable this little thing tucked away, this priceless gem tucked away in that parable that we miss most of the time. So if you have your Bible, you may want to underline this for your own records. But it says in the, in the 19th verse, after Jesus has told about the man that goes away and leaves the money for his servants to invest, but before the man returns, Jesus says this, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That's it. It's never mentioned again. Nor does he reintroduce that concept before the parable is over. It's just that one reference. There's the Lord, the nobleman, there's the servants, but he brings in the attitude of the subjects of the kingdom, and he says they did this very strange thing. The man is already approved and scheduled to be crowned king. There is no question. And at the crowning ceremony, they're going to break into the ceremony and protest in the middle of him receiving his crown and say, we have come as a delegation for the people who know this man to say we don't want him to be king. Now, what we have here is a will that people have set against a man that is rightly and appropriately going to be their king. The statement seems to be disconnected from the rest of the parable, but the reason Jesus threw this in, even though he didn't make it the emphasis of the story, is because his listeners, the Jews... He wanted them to understand subtly, just as a side note, that they were the ones who were going to reject the king who was going to be crowned. They were the ones that, though he deserved to be king, they were the ones that were going to say, we don't want him to be king. That's the battle of the will. This refusal to come under authority. It's this powerful statement about the ultimate stubbornness of people. This is what men and women and young men and young ladies are doing today with Jesus Christ. He's gone away, crowned king, and will return to his kingdom. He will rule and reign here over this earth. We believe that. That's what the Bible teaches us. And there is this little delegation of people who have already decided they have no use for him. You and I know there's no valid reason for anybody not to have a use for Jesus. But it's a matter of their stubborn will. We don't want this man to be our king. That is the cry of so many people today 
You try and tell them about Jesus, they don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't like that man. We don't want that man to be king over us. They are rejecting the authority of God. He's gone away. He expects us to remain faithful. He expects his servants to be good stewards of what has been entrusted to them. But the citizens are rising up in protest. We will not have this man to rule over us. And it's a sad thing indeed that the king, who has not yet returned to sit on his throne, is already being rejected by his subjects. Despitefully hated by the people, detesting his authority, detesting his rules of conduct, detesting his purity, detesting his servants who have remained here, and they refusing under any conditions to surrender their will to his. The battle of our will can wear us down. But then there's crushing outside forces. Paul said battles without, battles within. So we have these things we struggle with on the inside. It is the intention of the enemy to wear us down. But we have these outside forces to deal with as well. And let me define the world as the people and the circumstances that surround us, the crushing outside forces of the world, everything that surrounds us, everybody. As long as we're surrounded by people, we're probably going to have frustrations, aren't we? Even in the company of saints. Jesus was rejected by his own friends. He was rejected by his hometown. They didn't want him there. He was rejected by his own people, the Jews. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was denied and forsaken by Peter and his disciples. His own, his own received him not. Paul had to part company with Barnabas. You remember reading that in the book of Acts? There was this, there was this conflict, this strife between them. They were co-evangelists, missionaries. And Barnabas was very significant in, in the, the salvation and the, uh, the development and the discipleship of Paul. Yet they come to this point where they don't get along very well and they decide it's better for us to split up and go our own ways and do our own ministry as to be together in strife and contention. Can you imagine it? Two great pioneers of the Christian faith. And they can't get along with each other. It happens. And then you have Paul that has to confront Peter. Again, two huge pillars of the faith. And he has to walk up to Peter and say, you're, you're being a hypocrite. You talk big about ministering to the Gentiles, but when the other Jews coming around, you separate yourself from the Gentiles like you have nothing to do with them. And he called his hand on it. We have these confrontations, these, these testings, these trials, these little battles that we face, even in the safety uh, of our own, our own Christian company. It can happen. But this is rather mild compared to the pressure we get from the world, the ungodly people of the world. 
if we were ever pressed like grapes in a press, which is kind of what this wording that Paul used in the pressure that's coming against him and the crushing that's coming against him, is it brings up the, the, the mental picture of grapes being pressed. So if we were ever pressed like grapes in a press, it would certainly be when people of the light are forced to dwell among people of the darkness. That's an uncomfortable place to have to live sometimes. We talk about we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But that part about being in the world can make you go home so so frustrated for your experiences with godless people and pagan philosophies and the behavior of people. And what the world can do to, to bring the pressure on us is just almost indescribable. And we begin now to relate with, sure, we have our inward battles. We have our inward struggles. I have to struggle with my will. I have to struggle with my mind and where it goes. I have to struggle with, with my conscience and doing the right thing. But those seem rather petty considering what the world can do to frustrate us. Lot decided it would be a great thing to go and live in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked like the more fruitful choice when Abraham said, you choose one, I'll take the other. Well, that looks like a nice place to raise my family. That was the bad decision of the century. And he finds himself there surrounded by the grossest of darkness and wickedness. And the Bible describes that in a very colorful fashion. It says, he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the world. He vexed his righteous soul. Now there's somebody that didn't acclimate to the darkness. He didn't just get used to the filth and settle down and say, so what? And that's what I think every one of us need to be careful about. We're surrounded by the filth and the wickedness of this world, and if you're not careful, you can acclimate. But like Lot, should we not rather keep our hearts so tender to Jesus, to God, that we become vexed with the ways of the world rather than become a part of the ways of the world? The darkness of the world sometimes seems to be closing in around us. It is the agenda of hell to totally extinguish the light and to enshroud the world in its gross darkness. But you're carrying the light. And the battle is against you. Put out that light, hell says. We feel that pressure of being light bearers and somebody trying to put out our light. We feel the pressure of being truth tellers and somebody trying to shame us and destroy the truth. We feel the pressure of being flag bearers, standard bearers, and somebody trying to capture us and burn our flag. We feel the opposition everywhere we turn. Our efforts to live a holy life will always be confronted by the grossest wickedness. The crushing spiritual forces. Now we have the forces in our mind that come against us. We have the forces 
of the world that come against us, outside forces. And then we have crushing spiritual forces. You've all heard the term spiritual warfare. I'm not so sure that maybe that hasn't been too carelessly used in our present day and age, that we begin to miss the real essence of spiritual warfare. But it is real. It's just become too casual. But let's consider the pressure that comes against us by spiritual warfare. In in Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He doesn't mean we don't face physical struggles. He means that you cannot win spiritual battles with physical force. Although we try sometimes. It means that some of the physical struggles you face have a spiritual origin. It means the powers of darkness will work through people and through circumstances to create difficulties and struggles for you. And that means that ultimately this is a spiritual battle. We can see the tide turning in the world. We can see the tide turning in the United States. It hasn't been too long ago when we felt like we could comfortably call ourselves a Christian nation. Whether indeed we were really a Christian nation or not, we we knew that there was enough in our nation that people by and large were sympathetic to the concept that there is a God and the Bible is reliable and it gives us a an outline of morality that we should adhere to, and people honored that. hadn't been too long ago. Most of you here have lived through that era when we just felt comfortable in having Christian uh, surroundings and Christian principles guiding our government, our life, our judges. It's slipping away fast. We're losing great battles And Paul is telling us this is a spiritual problem. This is not a political problem. This is a spiritual problem. It's a problem with people who have no moral compass. That though they may rise to a level where they can have more influence... The problem is a spiritual problem. Now, here's the question, people. In all honesty, how do you fight a spiritual battle? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And there is nothing we can do in the physical realm to change the condition of our nation 
and make a permanent effective change. It's time that we realize this is a spiritual battle and we go to prayer. Do you believe prayer changes things? Then we don't have to sit there and wring our hands and worry and stew and fret and say we're losing this battle. There's nothing that can be done. Prayer changes things. When God declared to his people in the Old Testament, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, we realize the context of that. But it also tells us God's willingness to respond to spiritual integrity. God's ability to change things on a national level through our relationship with Him and the power of prayer. We see the principles there of what God can do and what He responds to. And I'm still convinced today that people who will pray and touch God can affect a change. Change in the history of the church as we read of great revivals that came to entire countries came because people repented. Because they declared a national repentance for their failures. In behalf of this nation they would say we repent. And God began to send revival to their land. Not because every person in the country repented or even wanted to repent. But because somebody stood in the gap and say, God, we are repenting for what our nation has done. We ask for you to bring us revival. How many of you saw the Billy Graham special the other night? Would you raise your hand? I see very few hands here. I hope that every one of you find a way to view that because it's still available for viewing. Just 30 minutes, 30 simple minutes, and is very, very powerful as a 95-year-old man that we know his life of integrity just sit there and in his very... A feeble, aged voice declared the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a powerful delivery. It was a very weak, humanly weak, man bound in a wheelchair. But the power of the Spirit flowing forth from the declaration of truth. I read an article to my wife today. And it was a man that declared himself to be a very hardened person, a hardened old redneck, he declared himself to be. But he said, let me tell you what impacted me about what I watched when I saw that, that Billy Graham special. He said, I was choked up to hear the testimonies of those two young people that were so lost and they found Jesus Christ. But he said, I've got to admit something. He said, I began to tear up. And he said, I haven't cried since my mom and my dog died. But he said something about sitting there and listening to the power of God changing human lives brought me to tears. This is a man who says, I'm a hard old redneck. But he was softened by the message of the gospel. And he said, I was softened by the message of integrity from a man who has lived 95 years and not one scandal in his life. And I was 
moved by a man who has not changed his message to stay popular in this world. He started out preaching the cross, and he's still preaching the cross. And the reason I brought that testimony to you today is because integrity and keeping the message pure will impact people no matter how hard they are. The preaching of the truth with a life that backs it up. We need integrity. God can change things according to prayer. There are crushing spiritual forces that are coming against you and coming against Christianity and coming against the church. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It would be nice to rally a bunch of people to take some signs and go down and pick at something. And when you're done, you haven't changed anything for the good of the kingdom of God. But if you will gather those same people together and say, let's touch God, let's pray, let's intervene, let's, be, let, let, let's repent on behalf of where our nation is going, God will be in on that one. He's not going to carry a picket sign with you, but he'll come to your prayer meeting. And he can begin to change the hearts and lives of men and women. We face physical struggles. Spiritual forces that wage their war against you, they don't take nights off. They don't take weekends off. They don't take furloughs. They don't rest. They are relentless. They don't even retreat by choice. Jesus came to the end of his temptation in the wilderness, and the Bible did say at that point, because Jesus had so soundly defeated the temptations of the devil, that it said the devil departed from him from a season. He took some mandated time off from the man that says, quit bothering me for now. I've had enough for you now, for the time being. What the enemy doesn't want is for the child of God to remember that to do spiritual warfare, even when the battle looks physical, that we know our weapons are mighty to the pulling out of strongholds. They're not carnal, but they're spiritual weapons. Most of us know what it feels like to be under spiritual attack. How many of you have been under spiritual attack in the past six months? How are you fighting it? Are you doing okay? Have you really pressed in in the prayer to fight this? You can reflect back on your own experience. Have you been trying to change circumstances around you? And maybe there's a wake-up call today by the Holy Spirit. In the past six months, you've been under spiritual attack. Maybe your attack is over. Maybe some of you are still going through the spiritual attack. But I'm here to tell you that spiritual battles are won through prayer. They're won through proper relationship with Jesus Christ. And this pressure that's coming, this unbearable pressure that Paul spoke of, to where he said we just despaired. We thought we had the death sentence. We're going to feel like that sometimes. So how resilient are you? There are two important factors that determine how severely you will be impacted by the crushing forces that are going to surround you. First of all is your spiritual condition. Paul uses the metaphor of jars of clay, earthen vessels, to describe you. Now it's interesting. There are two kinds or two stages, two states of the pottery. You're all pottery. Some of us are cracked pots. 
We're all pottery. But the two states, the two stages of this, is there is the pottery that has not been fired in the kiln yet. And then, of course, the, fi- the pottery that has. And it's hard and it's brittle. Now, one might be tempted to think that being hardened in the fire is a good thing. But in this particular application, it is not. It represents a hardening that takes away your flexibility and your malleability. The pottery that is still in the master's hands, that is still being fashioned, is the pot that can be fixed when there's a mar. The one that's already been fired in the kiln, the kiln of of, of, of willfulness, rebellion, bitterness, that's the one that when it is marred, it is destroyed. You want to be the one that is still in the master's hand. That though you are marred, he can make you anew. He can repair you. So your spiritual condition is, are you still malleable in the master's hands? Though these conflicts and these trials come against you, are you still in that state, willing to yield to him where he can fix you? Or have you become so hardened in your stance that when you're broken, you are smashed? And there's nothing that can be done. So the first thing that determines your ability to survive this is your spiritual relationship with God. Keep your heart right with Him. And the second thing that determines your success is the strength of the opposition. In the three passages that I started with, we find this important little bit of information. And I read it in the opening. But I'm going to refer back to this. Paul says we're hard-pressed. That's the great pressure on every side. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. See, the propaganda out of hell would have you believe you cannot survive your trials. Your strength is gone You cannot possibly absorb another blow. The enemy is bigger. Goliath stands twice as tall as I do. We have no chance of winning this battle. That's all the propaganda of hell. It looks hopeless. You look insignificant. You you feel powerless. You think you're going to lose. I used to wrestle when I was in high school. I can tell you, that when I looked across the mat, I sized up the person and decided in my mind if I was going to win or lose right off the bat. I looked at somebody, they didn't look like they were as strong or skilled as I was, and I would say in my mind, I've got this. This is mine. And I looked across at somebody that they came in wearing a leather jacket that was just hanging, dangling with medals, wrestling medals. I conceded in my mind before I ever stepped on the mat. I would go to my teammates, have you seen him? I'm going to get squished. The battle was lost in my mind. But that's not the way I need to operate as a Christian. I didn't make a great wrestler. I want to make a better Christian. I don't want to look at Goliath and despair. 
I don't want to look at the opposition and say, this is more than I can handle. I want to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't care what the situation looks like. I don't care how bad it looks. The propaganda of hell says, give up before you ever fight the battle. Well, you know why they want you to give up before you ever fight the battle? Because they know that you have the potential with Jesus Christ to whip anybody they bring to the mat. They don't want you to go to the mat. They want you to surrender before the fight starts. And this is a good knowledge of God's Word, where it is priceless for us to understand what God's Word tells us. He has set the limits of our opposition. Sure, you're going to have some battles. And sure, you're going to take a few shots once in a while. And sure, you might even be knocked back a step or two once in a while in your battles. That is not defeat. You might find yourself, like Paul, pushed to your very limits. And writing in retrospect saying, we despaired of our life. We thought we had the death sentence. We thought it was over. And here's what Paul said as I reread this passage, but I have put it in my translation. We're under such great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We thought we were going to die. We felt like we had received the death sentence. The reason God allowed us to be pushed so far. Are you being pushed today? The reason God has allowed you to be pushed as far as you've been pushed today and maybe even be pushed tomorrow and next week. The reason, as we should be hanging on the edge of our seat, please give me some way to make sense out of this struggle and this battle I'm going through is Paul said, is to learn not to rely on ourselves. We have to learn to lean on God. He has delivered us before. He is delivering us now. And we believe He will continue to be faithful to deliver us every time we feel surrounded by the enemy. Two benefits that we learn we just can't lean on our own strength. We have to learn to lean on God and to build our faith for the future. He has brought me through. He is bringing me through. And by faith, I know He will bring me through every trial that I have. And that's the benefits of the pressure that you're under. God is transforming you and building your faith. And the enemy will never be allowed to defeat you. Hang in there.